Good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. If you have a pew Bible, that's on page 821 of the pew Bible. Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. I want to thank the worship team and the support staff. Thank you for leading us so skillfully in worship this morning, so reverently in worship. I'm very grateful for uh, Raymond's invitation to be here. You would not be surprised to know that when he was a student, he was a diligent and intelligent and hardworking student, just as he's a diligent, hardworking pastor. He's, to this day, this is the truth, Raymond, when I told someone, I'm going to preach at the church of the PhD student who graduated with the most memorable dissertation title in the history of our school, and they said, they said the name of the title, even someone who didn't know you. I said, yes, that's the man. <clears throat> so you'll have to ask him about that. He has the most memorable dissertation title uh, of our school. And we were comparing sales figures for our, dis- our published dissertations, and I think it's a close race as to who's making the very least on their published <laughs> dissertation. It's a very small amount. Um, I want you to, to listen. We're going to be in Matthew 15, but I want you to listen to, just listen to me read from Psalm 119. My soul faints with longing for your salvation, O Lord. My eyes fail looking for your promise. How long must your servant wait? When will you punish my persecutors? When you read through the Psalms, it's encouraging to me that about a third of them are lament Psalms. About a third of the Psalms read like this, you know, Lord, how long will this physical suffering go on? God, how long will I wake up with sadness in my heart, go to bed with sadness in my heart? God, how long will you let these people treat me like this? How long will I have to endure this injustice? And it's encouraging to us because it gives us words to pray in those moments of suffering. And the passage we're going to look at in the Gospel of Matthew, I think, is instructive in a similar way. When we're going through suffering, when we're going through difficulty, and we cry out to God and it seems like the answer is silence, how do we, how do we endure that? How do we live that? I want to pray that the Lord would open our hearts to understand his word before we walk through the text here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would open our hearts and minds to understand your word that you would comfort and encourage and instruct us today, that we would leave here today resting more fully on the finished work that your Son has done for us. We ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be just walking through the text, uh, verses 21 through 28, but it's always good to look beforehand, right beforehand, to know where we are in the midst of the gospel. And right before this, if you look above this in chapter 15, Jesus has been disputing with the Jewish religious leaders. They've come from Jerusalem to Galilee, about a 65-mile journey, and they've been debating with him over what makes someone acceptable to God, what makes someone clean or unclean. If you eat these foods and wash your hands in these ways, does this make you clean and acceptable to God? And Jesus radically sort of twists their world around and says, in the kingdom that I'm inaugurating, all foods are clean through me. And we see in this next passage, dealing with a Canaanite woman, that in the kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating, all people can be clean and accepted through him. We begin in verse 21. It says, leaving that place. So it's leaving the area around the Sea of Galilee. 
Uh, what If you went to Israel on a Holy Land tour, some of you have probably done that. This, you've been all around this area. This What would be the traditional land of Israel, the Holy Land? They're leaving that, leaving that place. I'm reading from the NIV, which is very similar to the ESV that you have in your pew Bible. It says, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. So what we have here is a language of retreat. It's very transparent. They leave there, they withdraw, and they're going outside the traditional land of Israel. If you, if you have a map in the back of your Bible, you can look and you see that Tyre and Sidon are further to the north, uh, traditionally pagan or Gentile territory. In fact, if you leave your finger there in Matthew and you flip over to the Gospel of Mark, you can see we have a parallel account in Mark chapter 7, verse 24 and following. It says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. It says he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Okay, that's the language of retreat. That's the language of getting away. And if you read through the Gospels, Jesus and his disciples are constantly pulled upon him. Crowds are thronging around him. It says sometimes they, they don't even have the time to eat or to sleep. So when he wants to pray, when he wants to get away with his disciples to instruct them privately, they have to get away. And you'd think... Now, here's, this is the real getaway. I mean, this is really going out, outside the line. Who, who would know that Jesus is here? Who would know who he is? But we find it's very difficult uh, in light of the amazing person that he is for him to escape the crowds and their needs. To, to preface for what's coming next, I, I want to tell you a little modern-day parable for this. So imagine your pastor, Pastor Raymond here, uh, and his wife, Megan. They've been laboring here, and got lots of kids, been here eight years, working so hard. Someone, someone says to them, someone in the congregation says, it's been a long eight years, uh, you've been so faithful, we want to send you and Megan to Hawaii for a week. All expenses paid, go to the resort, time to rest, leave your computer, leave your phone here, we've arranged everything for your kids, it's all, all perfect. So they fly there, they check in the resort, they get in the room, uh, look out over the ocean, it's like, oh my goodness. This is so restful. But then there's a knock on the door. You know, Raymond opens the door. There's someone there like, Pastor Raymond? Uh, yes. I thought that was you. I've been to your church, Christ Church Westchester, a couple of times. And my wife and I are here on our 10th anniversary. And we just had this huge fight. And my wife's in the, in the restaurant downstairs. Do you think your wife could go talk to her? And I'm just I'm about to lose it. I mean, man, can you just sit with me and pray with me or something? Now, I, I walked around with Raymond yesterday. He's the, one of the most loving people. I think he greeted some telephone poles even when we were together. I mean, we, uh, but, but in that moment, in that moment, wouldn't that be, that'd be kind of hard. You know, you get finally getting away. And that's the experience the disciples have here. It says, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, crying out, crying out, right? A Canaanite woman. Now, if you, if you still have your finger in Mark, you might be interested to see the slight difference. Sometimes it can be instructive to see the slight difference in wording. It says in verse 26, Mark 7, 26, the woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She was a Syrophoenician woman. And so Mark uses a little bit more of the current political, uh, you know, provincial language of uh, Greco-Roman provinces and so on. But, but Matthew uses a different term. He uses the term Canaanite. And with that term, he's evoking the history of Israel, right? He's saying this is a woman who descended from the enemies of God's people. If you remember, if you've read through the Old Testament, God leads his people 
out of Egypt into the promised land, but they're surrounded by the pagan Canaanites who are either tempting them to idolatry or trying to defeat them by warfare. So we think of someone who would be outside the people of God. It would be this woman. She's descended from the, the arch enemies of God's people. And um, uh, I'm staying in this little apartment over here. I think I'm pointing the right direction. Okay, <laughs> over here. And uh, this, uh, I think it's really cool. I looked out the window. You could actually see Samuel Barber's house down the street, right? The guy who wrote Adagio for Strings, which I listened to last night because I'm, I'm one of these people who likes history and where I am. And it's, it's, online it says it's one of the saddest songs, you know, people say it's one of the saddest songs you can listen to, the lyrics. But if we were doing this as a movie, we, we need some sort of song, not a sad song, we need some sort of song that when the Canaanite woman came in that evoked all of the pain and the idolatry and the warfare of the history of Israel. You know, there, there would be this theme, there would be a musical theme that would play and it would be, it would be a dark theme. It would be a dark theme as she came in. So we read, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out. And we keep reading. This is not just like a one time. She's crying out. She's crying out. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, when we get to the end of this passage, if you look down to verse 28, you'll see this. Jesus says something to this woman he he never says to his disciples. It says, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted, right? There's something about this woman's, uh, the way she interacted with Jesus, that she demonstrated a commendable faith. So I want, us to, I want us to pay real close attention to what she says and how she interacts with Jesus to instruct us. When we go through similar suffering, how do we respond to the Lord? And we're going to... Um, uh, I looked at the ESV uh, last night this morning. It, the ESV actually follows the order of the Greek text a little more literally than the, the translation I'm reading. And I want to follow that order because I think it's very instructive, right? The first thing that the Canaanite woman said to um, Jesus was, have mercy on me, right? Then she said, called him Lord, and then she called him son of David. So the, the order you have, if you have the ESV, that's the order that's, that's followed in the, the Greek text. So what, what, let's think about these petitions and what they reveal about her. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. So when, um, when I use the word mercy, if we were just to go out and ask people, what is mercy? I think we'd get a lot of different answers as to what is mercy. And, and in the church, we sort of redefine mercy too. So mercy becomes a ministry that helps people who have financial needs, right? A mercy ministry. Or maybe someone you know, when they get excited, they're like, mercy, you know, they say, it's like a surprise. Or some, maybe you had a, a cousin that made you say that to keep him from twisting your arm off, you know, say mercy. But biblically, what is mercy? Mercy, calling out for mercy is to say, I have no right for what I'm asking. Right? I have no standing for what I'm asking. But I believe that you are good and that you, you are able to give me what I'm asking and you're kindly disposed to my petition. So I believe I have no right for what I'm asking, but I believe you're able to give me what I'm asking and that you're kindly disposed to my need. If you think about that, that's, a, that's quite a bit of faith involved in that petition. And I think it's instructive that the first thing she says is an admission of great need. Right? Because many times when people come genuinely come to faith in Christ, one of the first things they're aware of is the gaping need in the hole in their life, right? If 
Very soon the Lord will fill that. But it's that realization of emptiness, the realization there's something significantly lacking. There's a great need. The next thing she says to Jesus is she calls him Lord. Now, if you read Matthew carefully, Matthew has so reported the historical incidents of Jesus' life to help us understand better um, what's going on when people come to Jesus. And when people come to Jesus in, in his gospel and they call Jesus just rabbi or teacher, usually they don't get who Jesus is. But if they call Jesus Lord, then they get who he is. This is a woman who gets who Jesus is. Not only does she call him Lord in verse 22, but look down. She calls him Lord in verse 25. She calls him Lord in verse 27. And in fact, it, it may be somewhat obscured in the English translation, but there's the, word, the same word Lord is there again in verse 27. The eat the crumbs that fall from the Lord's table. So we have Lord, 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 Lord. I mean, I don't know if there's a higher frequency of the word Lord in the gospel, to be honest. The, this woman believes that Jesus is Lord. What does it mean that she believes that he's Lord? It means that she comes to him. He is authoritative. He is sovereign. And she comes bowing in submission to him. Right, so that's, again, that's quite a bit of faith, right? Is it, there's content to her faith. First off, she comes at acknowledging her desperate need, his ability to meet the need, and his kind inclination to hear her. Now she comes acknowledging that he is sovereign and authoritative, and she comes submitting herself under him. Maybe this is not a problem in Westchester. I don't know. But in the, uh, in the southern United States, there can be a lot of nominal Christianity. And um, I don't know if you've ever heard someone share a testimony where they talk about, oh, you know, I was 13, or, and I came to know Jesus as my Savior. And then I lived like a wild pagan. You know, and then I came to know Jesus as my Lord. But if you read the Bible, that, that is not, that's not a category that the Bible gives to know Jesus as Savior and not as Lord. Jesus says, if you come to me, right, salvation is a free gift. It's not something we work, we work for. He says, come, but he says, if you come to me, anyone who comes after me must take up his cross and follow me, right? There's not, it's not like Lord is a second option. Like that's a, that's a plan you get later on. But when we come to Jesus and receive freely the forgiveness of our sins and salvation, we also come bowing the knee. So it's like the, the reading we had from the confession this morning. The repentance and faith are, are two sides of the same coin. They're inseparable graces where we, we come turning from our sin and turning to him as our Savior and as our Lord. So this Canaanite woman, she, I think you need to invite her for the next Sunday night theology. Make it a, a women's event like a Simeon Trust, right? She's, very, she's quite a theologian. Right? She knows, in fact, if you think about it, not until next chapter does Peter confess Jesus as the Christ. She, he was studying off her notes, I think, if you look at it. So, but uh, the woman, she, she says to Jesus, have mercy on me. She says, Lord. And then it's amazing. The next thing she says is shocking. <laughs> it's shocking. She calls Jesus the son of David. That is a messianic title. This is a Canaanite woman. She's like, you are the Messiah. Right? You are the Christ. I mean, that from a Canaanite woman. The other yesterday, uh, Raymond on our, on our jaunt around Westchester, where we did meet about 40% of the people who live here. Uh, but we, we went through the campus, and he told me, he was giving me all the history. He said, This is where I think Trump came, and they had 
a rally and all that. And regardless of our political affiliation, just, just hear this as a parable, an analogy. Imagine you, you went by there, you were at that event, and there were a bunch of people with signs that said, illegal immigrants for Trump. And, and they were chanting, you build a wall and we'll stay behind it. Now, if you saw that, you'd be like, this is the strangest thing I've ever seen in my life. That's like a Canaanite woman saying, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. So it's a shocking thing. Now, a couple of people here, a few people here, if you haven't been in the church, maybe it's confusing. Say, Jesus is the son of David. I thought he was the son of Mary. And what is that? Well, if you flip back to the beginning of Matthew, the first verse prepares us for this. It says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So, and then it gives his genealogy according to his human nature. It's telling us Jesus is the rightful descendant of David, according to his human nature, to, be, to sit on the throne of David. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that one of your descendants will one day reign on your throne forever. So this proclamation, she's saying, you are the promised descendant of David who will reign on his throne forever. All the promises of the Old Testament, the Messianic promises, they're fulfilled in you. So she's, she's a biblical theologian too, Raymond. She's a systematic theologian, a biblical theologian. She's a practical theologian. Look at this uh, afterwards. She doesn't say, I don't know what's going on with my daughter, but I just need help. She diagnoses it, boom, like this. She nails it. She says, my daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. She could be a biblical counselor. She could be a, a, a practical theologian. She says, my daughter is indwelt by an evil spirit. And I believe that you're the only one who can help me with this problem. What, what was, the, the account is rather abbreviated. It doesn't tell us. Was the, was the daughter uh, foaming at the mouth? Was she uh, hurting herself? Was she rolling around? We, you, we could see other examples in the New Testament of how people who are possessed or oppressed by a demon, how they act. We don't, we don't know in this case. We also don't know how in the world the Canaanite woman found uh, found out about Jesus or found out, understood anything about messianic prophecy, we don't know, right? We can This is all speculation. We can imagine growing up as a Canaanite. She probably had all kind of Canaanite religious rituals that she tried. She went to the shaman. She went to this. She tried this little thing, this charm. She incited this incantation. We don't know, but whatever it was, we realize in this world, desperation can be a great theological tutor and desperation had driven her to the point where she's like, this is the person who can help me. Everything else didn't work, but I've come to see Jesus. And she had, she had learned enough to, to be able to say, you are the Messiah. You are the, you are the son of David. You are the Lord. You are the one who can have mercy on me. An immense amount of content, really, in her faith, if you think about it. Now, I, I think because of the cultural and chronological distance, we all, it's difficult for us to feel the full tension of this passage. So I, wanna, I want us to try to enter into that a little bit more. So stay with me, if you will. Let's imagine that we could go back in time, fly back through time, and we were, we were a documentary film crew. We're, we're just documenting this. You know, we're filming it. I don't know how you do that. You know, this is what you used to do, but you don't do film like that anymore. So we'll just do it like this. Like we're, film, we're filming this. We're like, oh, okay, wait. We're getting some great footage. We're going to do a documentary about the life of Jesus. 
So here this woman has come. She said, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Like, hey, this is awesome. Sometimes Jesus, he spits on the ground. Sometimes he, he like says, go home. They're healed. You know, sometimes he touches. Just watch. This is going to be amazing. Just watch this. And, and we're, we're filming. Jesus did not answer a word. Cut. We're like, come over here, Jesus. Just a second. Uh, <clears throat> this is totally off script. I mean, uh, we, we, you know. Have you ever seen Mr. Rogers? You know how in that he always comes in. He's very predictable. He puts on the little slippers and always the little sweater. He sits in the same place. We're not trying to control you or anything, but if you could be a little more predictable like that, it would really make us all comfortable. The, this, the silence thing is really uncomfortable. I even have to count in my head. I'm so uncomfortable. I'm like, be silent a little bit longer so they can feel it. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable, isn't it, the silence? <laughs> and it, 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 made, it made them uncomfortable, too. I, if we keep reading, the disciples are very uncomfortable. We don't know what Jesus was thinking at this point. We don't know what the woman was thinking. We don't know their facial expressions. Right? But I'm very grateful this passage is in here. For several reasons. One, it's a good reminder, isn't it, that when we call out to the Lord and the answer is silence, it does not necessarily mean that there's some sin in our life. It does not mean that the Lord is against us. Look at this woman is commended at the end like none other. Woman, you have great faith, right? Sometimes we don't understand, but the, there's silence that we wait through. I'm also grateful as one who teaches the New Testament, I'm grateful for this because it reminds us the, new t- the, the early church didn't sanitize the Gospels to take out passages they were uncomfortable with. They gave it in full strength. This is what Jesus said and did. We hear it. We learn from it. We bow before it. This, this really happened. And this is, it's given here for our faith and our encouragement. The disciples uh, at least interpreted Jesus' silence as ambiguity. Right? They, they didn't interpret it positively. So we read, we continue reading in verse 23. It says, So his disciples came to him, and they urged him, Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. If we want sort of a paraphrastic version of this, we could say, This woman is so annoying. She will not shut up. Can you please get rid of her? We thought we were coming to Hawaii. And we're having to listen to crazy lady in the street yelling at us. Back with the film crew. We're like, oh, oh, this is just like with the kids. Remember? The little kids come. The disciples are like, send them away. Jesus is like, no, let the kids come. This is going to be great. Jesus is going to rebuke the disciples. It's going to be encouraged. It's going to be amazing. Just hold back and watch. Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. Cut, cut. Okay, Jesus, come over here a second, just if you could. That's uh, like, it sounds like you're saying I didn't come for you. And that's like, like the silence. We could put some music in the background there. But the, the, I came only for the lost sheep visible. That, sound, that sounds kind of strong. It is strong, I think. And, but we, let's remind ourselves, I think we as readers of the Gospel of Matthew can understand what's going on even better than the woman or the disciples could at that point because we have the whole, whole gospel. And, and Matthew, if you read the whole gospel, he's telling us we're in act two of a three-act drama. Just within a few months, act three is coming. 
In Act 3, the gospel, Jesus says, go make disciples of all nations, right? This woman's act is coming. But she's in Act 2. We have to set the stage. Act 1, Act 1, 2,000 years before this, God made a promise to Abraham. He said, Abraham, I choose you, right? Abram, I choose you out of all the nations of the world to reveal myself to you and your descendants. I'm going to show who I am. I'm going to give you my holy laws. And then one day will come one of your descendants, an offspring of yours, and through him I will bless all the nations. So we have the promise. Then we have the arrival of the promised offspring who announces the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. And then we have Act 3 that's coming very soon where the, the gospel breaks forth to all nations. This woman is a Gentile. She's supposed to be in Act 3. But just like if you went to the local theater and there was someone who was supposed to be in Act 3 and they're pulling the curtain in their back, they're like, hey, hey, can I get in Act 2? I want to be here. This is more fun. I'm ready for this now. You'd be like, this is disruptive. This is disorganized. This makes me uncomfortable. And that's, that's what was being experienced by the disciples. She's like, I do not want to wait. I, want to, I, I need help now. I cannot wait. For the, the however much she knew of it, we, we're not sure. And she's persistent, but in a way that is very pleasing to the Lord, right? Uh, let's remember how the story ends. Verse 25, the woman came, right, and knelt before him. And she said, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. So we see that when we are deeply interceding with the Lord for ourselves or for others, it shows up not just in our words, it shows up in our posture, right? This woman, um, you know, we don't know exactly the setting, but I imagine Jesus and the disciples said they were in a house. Houses didn't have windows like this. They had windows, but not with paned glass or something. You could hear things in the street, and maybe this woman was out in the street. Maybe she's at the door. Maybe at this point, some disciples were like, forget this. We're going to go walk around town rather than listen to crazy lady. She was able to get closer to Jesus. We don't know. She was able to get close. She got close to him. She, through her bodily posture, showed her great need and her request. And, and the most basic petition that she had is just, help me. Help me. Be encouraged. If you're here this morning, that if that's what's in your heart, Lord, I just, Help me. Help me. What does Jesus say about someone who comes to him and says, help me? He says, this is great faith, right? To come knowing that you have need and to come believing that Jesus can meet you with that need, that is pleasing to him. She says, Lord, help me. Now back to the documentary film crew. We're like, oh, this is great. We, we, we fought against this, but the, ten, you know, the tension, here it is. He's going to say, yes, I help you, and all the disciples will be taught a lesson. Jesus replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Cut. <laughs> Hold on, Jesus. <laughs> I, I, we, we, I didn't want to tell you this, but we had a deal with Zonder Kids and the VeggieTales people, but this is never going to make it in a kid's Bible now. This is not going to work. I, I mean, the, the sheep, but dogs, I mean, it's like strong words, right? And if you read the commentaries, the resources that are supposed to help pastors teach this, I think at this point they get a little ridiculous, to be honest. Um, they're correct in pointing out this fact uh, somewhat, but they say, well, the normal word for dog in Greek is kuon or kunas, but here the word is kunarion, which is sort of more of a smaller house dog. <laughs> so you're like, 
Okay, so Jesus refers to us sort of as a golden doodle rather than a coyote. It's like, is that still, it's like, does that really take away the, the, the problem? And, and if you think about it, it's, it's really, this, really the same sort of thing as the sheep statement, isn't it? It's basically saying, lady, you don't have a seat at the table right now, right? The son, I've come to announce salvation to the, the offspring, immediate offspring of Abraham, I've come to an the, the seat is set for Abraham and 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 you're not your your name placard is not on the table yet, right? It's not it's not your time yet. And notice how she responds to Jesus. Every time that we've responded as a documentary film crew, we've been like, no, 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 hold on, no, no, don't say that, don't do that. But what does she say? She says, yes. Which goes well with the word Lord if you think about it. <laughs> You know, if Lord says, I come and submit to you, and <laughs> yes is always a good thing to say to the Lord, she says, yes, <laughs> granted, agreed. She's like, I agree, I don't have a right, I don't have a spot at the table, but, she says, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. She's like, if I can just eat the crumbs, Jesus, that fall from the table where you're serving, that's enough for me. I'm satisfied with that. And then Jesus answered her. It says, he said to her, woman. And uh, this is the same form, the exact same uh, grammatical form that Jesus uses to address his mother from the cross. He says, dear woman, here's your son, and to, referring to the beloved disciple John, and here's your mother. So I think it's, it's, it's not, uh, in English, woman sounds a little bit more, Rough, I think, than, than this would have been in the original uh, language. I think probably it's something more like dear woman or in southern English, ma'am. <laughs> ma'am, dear woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Now, if you look over again, if you have Mark 7 still that set there, you get a little more detail. It says in Mark 7.30, she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone, right? It's a wonderful and encouraging story. I just want to draw three um, principles or lessons from it as we uh, near the end here. So first off, about great faith. I think it teaches us that, one, great faith comes in desperate need. (laughs) Great faith comes in desperate need. When we come empty, we're ready to be filled up. Great faith doesn't come confident in itself, doesn't come... Uh, ready to parade it's what, what it has to offer, but it comes in desperate need. We see that many times in the passage. Have mercy on me. I'm in desperate need. I have no right. Help me. I have the need for outside help. And so um, just to encourage you, uh, you know, if you're, if you're feeling very needy this morning, if you're feeling very empty this morning, um, that's a great place to have God fill you and meet you in that need. I think sometimes, too, I know there are a lot of young people in here and a lot of, a lot of people in theological study as well. You, you can look at your life and you think, well, if I didn't have these things, you know, I could do all this great stuff for God. You know, if I didn't have this physical ailment, if I didn't have this emotional or mental baggage, if I didn't, didn't have this family situation, financial or family uh, situation that's holding me back. But I think this passage would challenge us to say all of those needs are not keeping you from life, right? But they're driving you into the arms of the one who is life himself, that we embrace the Lord Jesus. And we find in our need, we find then his provision for our need 
and our ability then to, to live um, for him. So first off, great faith comes in desperate need. If you feel needy, that's a great place to exercise faith in the one who can meet that need. Secondly, we see that great faith perseveres. This woman was very persevering. Her perseverance was a source of annoyance to the disciples. They were annoyed by her, but Jesus commended her. He saw her. She kept knocking. She kept asking. She kept seeking. And in the end, she was commended like no other. It's a mysterious thing we can't fully understand that God is completely sovereign. Not even a bird falls to the ground apart from his knowledge or will. And yet, He's pleased by us continuing to ask, continuing to seek, continuing to knock, looking for his intervention. It does not always guarantee that the answer is your request is granted, right? So there are two possible answers. One, your request is granted, or two, it might be like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Paul has a thorn in his flesh. Lord, take this thorn from me. Take this thorn from me. Take this thorn from me. And the answer is my grace is sufficient for you for my power is perfected in weakness. It's one of those two answers. Yes, or my grace is sufficient. But if we pray, if we persevere, if we ask and knock and seek, we either rejoice in the answer or we have the strength to receive uh, the, the, the answer that we need to wait. God's grace is sufficient. Either way, we're prepared. Right? So first off, if we want to have a great faith, this woman instructs us to be willing to admit our great need. And maybe, maybe part of God's grace is just asking, God, help me to see my need. Um, sometimes we as older Christians, some of us in here have been Christians for a long time, we forget our need, and then we stumble, then we fail, then we say something stupid, we hurt someone, and we realize, wow, I don't really, <laughs> I don't really have anything to give me to, to, to merit my acceptance into the kingdom of God. It's, it's an act of God's grace, his forgiveness to me every day. So a great faith comes in desperate need. A great faith perseveres. A great faith hangs on, presses forward. We got RTS students in here. We got Westminster theological students in here. We got Southern Baptist. We got so many reformed people in here. We got reformation happening, right? We got we got a high view of God's sovereignty. But let's be honest: when you have a high view of God's sovereignty, sometimes you you can excuse your laziness in prayer that way. I just trust in God. Well, maybe God wants you to pray more. <laughs> maybe that's the way he wants you to show your trust in him rather than just acknowledging as a doctrinal point his sovereignty, right? So true faith um, comes in need. True faith perseveres, a great faith. And then we see, I think the most important thing about her great faith is a great faith is in a great Savior, right? What made her faith great was the object of her faith. What made her faith great was the content of her faith, that she believed Jesus was able to help her and was kindly disposed to, that she believed Jesus was Lord, that she believed Jesus fulfilled all the promises given in the Old Testament to David and the Messianic promises, that she believed Jesus could help her, right? And, and sometimes people can be down, I wish I had greater faith. You will not get greater faith by staring at your navel, right? You will get greater faith by looking outside of yourself and looking at who Jesus is and what he has done. When, you look out, when we look outside of ourselves to the Lord and we gaze at him, we meditate on him, we read about him, we, we savor and nourish our souls on who he is and what he's done, then we experience uh, great faith because we're looking at him and not looking at ourselves and our experience of, 
of faith. We're not looking at the subjectivity of faith, but we're looking at the object, uh, the content of faith. Now, um, I think if, if we're honest in here, I'm guessing there are at least a few of us that this passage still, you're like, I don't know. I mean, that was really rough. Like, was, was, was Jesus too hard on her? Was, it, was that? A couple of things I say to that. One is he didn't say, have this conversation with you, right? Uh, and this was, the one, this was the woman who needed this conversation, and she was prepared and ready for it. I have three daughters. One daughter, they had this, be back and forth with her, this conversation. One daughter could, <laughs> would blow away as dust if she had this kind of, like, they're all, people are all different. Jesus knows our temperaments, and he knows. Uh, so he, he's dealing with this woman just as, as she needed in this moment. But I want us to think, too, if we could, if, and this is somewhat, obviously this is, is hypothetical, we can't do this. But if we, if we were to go to heaven and we were to ask this woman and as we, about this experience, if we, if we could do that, what would she say? Based on this passage, just thinking about this and what we know about, about uh, you know, being with the Lord in heaven and the rest of the New Testament. I'd, first off, when we, if we were to encounter her, I want us to realize she would, be, she would be reflecting the glory of God. She would just be so brilliant Right? She would be shining with such brilliance that we probably would forget our question and we would fall down on the ground unable to speak. That's what usually happens when people encounter those who ref- reflect the glory of God. But if we could speak to her and we would say, woman, no, we would say woman, we might say dear ma'am, <laughs> Canaanite lady, <laughs> whatever your name is, uh, we, we wonder if this was, we read this passage and we know Jesus is perfect. We know he cannot sin. And, but I read this and think, this is really hard. Was this hard for you? I think, based on the text, we could say she, she would have to admit, it was really hard having my daughter suffering like that. It seemed like it was going to go on forever. My daughter was suffering. What could I do? And it was, the conversation was really hard. But... If those things had not happened, how could I have come to know Jesus as the one who, who, who really met my need? How would I have ever gone to look for the one who is the Savior, the, the Messiah of Israel, me as a Canaanite? What could have brought me to go looking for him except that? How else would I have come to know the one who is now my joy and my Lord in his presence, joy lasting forever and ever? I want to ask you, the suffering that you're going through, could God have the same purpose for that? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we know your word says that all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. I pray that you would strengthen our faith today to trust that you are working even the sufferings and difficulties out in our life to conform us to the image of your Son to rest more fully in who he is and what he did for us on the cross, that we might leave here renewed and refreshed with fresh, with, with fresh trust in you um, and, and all your good plans. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.